0: Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy.
1: Welcome to this very special edition of What on Earth. In this episode, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Tia Kinsara, a special advisor to the UN on climate change. and She's going to join us from Glasgow, where she's participating in various aspects of the UN Climate Change Conference also known as the 26th Conference of Parties, or COP26 for short. As well as speaking to to, uh, Tia in Glasgow, we're also going to get the experience of virtual attendance in Glasgow by our man, Tenet Reid, who has spent the last week on UK time attending the conference via computer. What we're going to do is we're going to build on our last episode where we discuss what COP26 was all about, We're going to go beyond the news headlines and find out what on earth does this all mean for businesses here in Australia. Hello, my name is James Scotland. I'm the General Manager of Minerals, Energy and Supply Chains for AI Group. And joining me to co-host as always is, as I said, the temporary virtual Scottish resident, tenant, Reid. Hello, Tenant. Hello, I'm conscious. (laughs) Uh, It's good to have you here, no matter where you are in your mind. (laughs) And of course, Paul Hodson, a business and industry commentator with a strong interest in innovation and change. And Paul is in Brisbane, I think. Hello, Paul.
2: Hi, James. Yes, I haven't been virtually or physically (laughs) attending, but I've been trying to uh, keep up with the deluge of announcements and news.
1: It's been busy, hasn't it? Did you know that according to official figures, there are over 30,000 people in Glasgow for COP26 and probably twice that many attending virtually. And as I say, we're lucky to have two of those 90,000 people joining us today. Tia is there physically and Tennant is there virtually. Tia has been hosting several high-profile events and meeting some pretty amazing people. And I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say about life there on the ground. Meanwhile, Tennant is presenting and attending the Turkish Pavilion and many other uh, meetings uh, in Glasgow. So I'm looking forward to hearing what he's hearing and what he's seeing. Let's get their perspective and see if we can get some clarity in the chaos of news headlines and, uh, and activity. Before we get into COP26, let me introduce you to Tia. It's great to have you here, Tia. Tia's CV is impressive in anyone's language. I met her years ago at an event in Sydney where we were both presenting, and of course she got on stage after me and no one remembered a word I said because she has always blew everyone away. Um, And I've been proud to say we've kept in touch on and off ever since. She's a ball of energy, incredibly intelligent, globally well-connected, a fabulous commuter, a communicator, better than me, and more than anything, absolutely committed and passionate about her life's work. Tia is a multi-award winning entrepreneur, an economist, an advisor to several countries on sustainable living and future cities, a TED Talk specialist, and so much more. She has won the highest award for architecture in the UK without being an architect. An amazing woman, and we are so pleased to have her with us today. Bino to you, know, Tia, your C V doesn't do you justice. There's much more to you than just that. And I think you're probably the best person to introduce yourself. Uh why don't you give us uh, you know, the, the elevator pitch of Tia and Sarah? So hello to welcome to the Australian audience again and welcome back. Welcome to What on Earth? Tell us about yourself.
0: Thank you. Hi everybody, and, and apologies about the background noise. I'm right in the center of our resilience lab. It's the C's lab itself on Foresight. Um, and so a little bit of, of the, the kind of, I suppose the elevator pitch would be that um, we're trying to understand exactly what it means to live in harmony with nature. Um, of course, giving more than you take is a concept that is at the core of Replenish's work. Um, and I sort of sit between two organisations. One is a 42-year-old, community architecture firm, which was the pioneer of self-build and was the first ever organization in the UK that was ISO certified for sustainable architecture. And then the other is Replenish Earth, which is really about climate resilience and appreciating what kind of adaptation uh, we can do that support governments and businesses on their climate strategy, risk and investment. And one can only imagine this is the time that everybody is waking up to um, the reality of climate disasters around the world, even though they may not be at your doorstep, they are happening at somebody else's. And we're making decisions that go beyond our boundaries. So they're transboundary consequences to whatever resource use we have. Often we come from a scarcity mindset because as um, economics often is, Um, a study of the scarcity of resources rather than the abundance of them. So really our opportunity this week and uh, last week and this week um, was to explore what that means to go beyond that into an abundant mindset and not to be too dismayed by the negative press on are we getting there fast enough and have we done done enough? Because the the real question for me is, um, are we able to go beyond our reality and imagine a different future?
1: Well, I, I think it's good that uh, it was great to have you here and it's wonderful to hear you say those things particularly talk about the the concept of 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 resources in a greater sense than just business or or or, or natural or um or, or uh, economic resources but to see it as a whole picture uh, we've often this this is a business webinar and we've um, a podcast this is a business podcast and so we've often said that business is market driven so to Uh, understand our markets we need to look at all aspects so it's good to get your view on things different from just a normal business perspective it'll be good to hear what's going on um, in in your world so let's talk about this UN conference we're recording this on Monday night in Australia and the conference is only halfway through yet three separate people on the weekend told me that they thought the week the conference was over mainly because the global leaders had gone home and the media had moved on, which is frustrating considering there's still a week to go and a lot of work to be done. And, look, I get it. The COP's different from most global meetings, isn't it, where, in this case, the, 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 national, the national leaders turn up at the beginning of the conference, make announcements, then the negotiators do all the hard work for a couple of weeks, and then the ministers turn up to make an announcement. It's back to front from a normal one. But I still think it's frustrating. Uh, in Australia, it's almost like, as I said, it's all over. But there's lots of frustrations about this particular cop. Ben Rhodes, the UN foreign policy expert, probably said it best when he said that it could be explained with a simple observation that the negotiators are inside the building frustrated by the lack of progress, whilst the protesters are outside protesting about the lack of progress. Everyone's in the same spot. There's been several announcements during the week, including deforestation commitments, methane commitments, funding commitments, all sorts of things, and yet everyone still appears to be quite frustrated. So let's talk about that. All these commitments are welcome, but apparently, and from what I'm hearing, I'd like to know from you guys, this is still going to fall short of the only target that matters, which is 1.5 by 2050. I've been attending the McKinsey webinars uh, and I've been inspired by the CEO commitments and attitude to what needs to be done. They know it's not enough, but they're now on board and seeing the opportunities for their business. We might want to talk about that as well. So what do you guys think? What's been happening? Let's get a rundown on what's happening the first week and, and then we can take it from there. Tenet, what have you been seeing? What's been happening in your world? Before I go to, to Tia, let's hear from you. So I've been heavily
3: focused in the past week on one particular part of the negotiations themselves. As I think we talked about previously, the the COP is a lot of things. It's a place where big announcements happen. It's a place where a lot of information is exchanged and it's a place where there are working negotiations. And in the negotiation stream, one of the big issues that remains to be settled is the rules for Article 6, international cooperation in emissions reduction uh, and adaptation. Uh, And uh, those are hard negotiations, but they are the foundation for the rules that they uh, hope to provide will be the foundation for um, whether Australia will be able to sell carbon uh, sequestration units to other countries or buy them and the rules for ensuring that that has integrity, that there's not double counting, that there's not a lot of hot air. Uh, so those are hard, but um, grindingly, bit by bit, uh, they have been making progress. And uh, I was in a meeting Um, an hour ago where seasoned observers of this process uh, from the business community were saying they were quite hopeful that actually this time after failure at Madrid, failure at Katowice on this point, that a deal will be done uh, by the end of the conference. That's not to say the conference might not go into a bit of extra time to get there, uh, we, we uh, we're probably likely to go a bit past the the Friday deadline. Uh, but you know th- things are happening there, uh, which is very encouraging. Um, And otherwise, well, yeah, as you said, there's been a cavalcade of announcements outside the process, uh, and uh, those include national uh, commitments on uh, 2050, 2060, 2070, depending on the nation for achieving net zero. India's commitment to net zero by 2070 is incredibly significant. uh, That uh, in India, in a lot of the models, uh, accounts for a lot of the future growth in emissions and their commitment to get to net zero by 2070 yes it's it's later but it's actually that's very consistent with what is needed to stay well below two degrees. Um, so that's immense. Obviously, it needs to be translated, in, like everybody else's commitments, into near-term action, but they made a number of significant announcements there as well, including around increasing their uh, renewable energy and their non-fossil energy sector. Um, so I think that was a very big deal. The, the, the methane, global methane agreement, um, is attracting a lot of signatories more than 100 countries so far committed to reduce methane 30% by 2030. Uh, And Australia is not currently one of those countries. In fact, we've explicitly said we won't, uh, but um, that may need to be revisited down the track. Uh, And certainly it's a a very significant uh, commitment because methane is quite a powerful part of uh, current warming. Um, We're seeing more, of course, in deforestation uh, and a lot of announcements around hydrogen. One of the things that that I have seen is just how much competition Australia has uh, for the the title of hydrogen export superpower. there's a lot of countries that have got strong sun, strong wind and uh, a strong interest in being a mega exporter uh, and so you know watch out Australia because like Chile and many others are coming to eat what we currently think of as our lunch um, but yeah I've found it an amazing week so far exhausting week uh, and uh
1: sunday was nice and quiet so recharging a bit for for week two don't get used to um that quiet sundays because week two is coming fast hey uh, i think um we'll pick up all those markers that you threw down in in our conversation uh but yeah it's been a big week of announcements now the work happens one of the things that i did here which i quite liked is that the conference is about setting the ambition which is the targets It's trying to understand the process and what it looks like post-carbon and how do we get to post-carbon and then there's the rules of how we get there and you mentioned uh, the rules and I know that we've had a lot of talk about the ambition in the last couple of days at AI Group Uh, but your area, Tia, is this idea about what it looks like after carbon, the post-carbon. What's happening in Glasgow in that area and and how's your week been? Mm,
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, my week has been... Quite, um, quite an oscillation between uh, incredible amounts of excitement and just absolute exhaustion. Um, you know, my 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 energy has has been um, reinforced by the number of people who are here, um, people from every single decade, and just randomly bumping into um, you know so many different groups that have been working to restore nature, restore their they're sort of um, almost like their own replenishment, right? <laughs> this is one of the biggest events for the majority of the people that are here in the physical. In a, the majority of people haven't had the opportunity to meet um, each other in the way that they have, to continue conversations, to be here in person, to feel that connection of those that are amongst this community that is interested in doing this work. So it is, it's, a, it's an incredible challenge um, on the one hand, to maintain level amounts of energy to keep pushing this agenda, and at the same time, um, you know, it's it's such a curious um, it's a curious time because we don't really know where it's going to go, but we all have to participate. So there is an expectation and a responsibility, and that in itself is 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 a is a great way to explore this week of activities that just every single panel that I've been on has been an exquisite conversation. And sometimes just by talking about something, it feels as if that in itself is the action. So of course, when I take that sort of broader perspective perspective of where are we, where are we going, and what would we like to achieve from the UN's perspective of the resilience frontiers that were launched as as a foresight initiative, we brought together well over a hundred people from a variety of different uh, disciplines from Ridley Scott's team, production team to uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's, um, you know, write up to kind of like bring together an entire mindset shift. And that is exactly what we're here for. And our challenge is how do we go beyond the current paradigm to shift to something that doesn't quite yet exist? but that unless if we move away from these sort of small incremental topical solutions, we will be reinforcing a structure that is not fit for human habitation anymore. So if we look at, let's say a wonky window and just want to keep on replacing with it with another window that will suffice for the next two years, unfortunately that comes crashing down. Then we start sort of like looking at another solution, but instead of changing the frame and changing the foundation we are effectively not making the kind of strides that we need to for those exponential shifts that we need to see. So from the actual foresight lab, if we are to, you know, come out of um, this kind of in-box thinking, then we need to move out of the box. And I think in the future, we just need to have no box
1: at all. Yeah, one of, the, uh, one of the guys, I think, from Chatham House, which I probably can't mention, but anyway, one of the guys from Chatham House said... You're breaking uh, the
3: rules.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, he said, and Paul, you might have a comment here, that this is this idea about not in my um, election cycle. In other words, I can make commitments for 2050 because I won't be around then. I can make a commitment for twenty forty five, but making a, a, a putting a case to the general people of the world of what we need to get to, such as T was talking about, is is impossible for a politician. is that is that right? or do...
2: look, I, I think i've been I've been having a look at and I've been watching. I haven't been as uh, as involved as Ten and Tia in this process. I've been in, you know, buoyed, I guess by things like the breakthrough agenda. So for our domestic audience in Australia, there was very much a 2050, but not really shifting the dial on the targets for 2030. Um, But all of the breakthrough, the breakthrough agenda we signed up to in power, in road transport, in hydrogen, and in steel, all have um, a push to 2030, and we're one of 40 countries in that. So I think there's sometimes different messages, and you have to sort of, you have to sort of, sort of. Look below the surface, I guess, of some of the announcements to actually see what's really going on. Um, and there's a good chance that we'll we'll better, uh, significantly better the targets for 2030. But uh, politically, you know, the, the government doesn't want to actually increase those targets. Um, and it's uh, it's. But when you look at some of the actions we are we do have some things. Uh, the methane thing is obviously an exception. Um, but in some of those other areas, and, and Tennant mentioned hydrogen, um, there's been a big push, I think, um, over this last couple of weeks or last week and, and probably into this week too.
1: Well, I'll come back to to Tia about this idea about whether or not the announcements that we're making in places like Australia and Chile and around the world, whether or not they have a cumulative effect on what you're talking about, which is post-carbon. But Tennant, you had a comment?
3: Yeah, I just really agree with Tia's comment about um, looking beyond the paradigm that we're in at the moment. Uh, and I've seen a, a, a couple of examples through the, the past week of, of where the, the future is taking shape a bit faster than, than thinking is catching up to it. So I was just observing in a, an event that Australia's Climate Change Authority put on on the regional carbon market initiative that Australia is, is trying to set up. And uh, Japan participated in that event. Japanese uh, officials uh, were asked about uh, LNG and its role in the transition, and and they said that they thought that uh, investments in uh, LNG burning um, gas power generation in Asia uh, at the moment would not be stranded assets down the track because uh, they could be refuelled with hydrogen and the, the technical ability to do that was coming. There was, there was already some of it here and the ability to go to 100% was coming. And like that is all technically true, but... The world in which um, hydrogen costs one uh, one US dollar per kilo is a world where renewable energy is very, very cheap. And um, anybody trying to make a, a living off bulk power from hydrogen burning uh, in that world is going to be losing their shirt. Um, the, the the world that's emerging is is um, not quite uh, in sight yet for some of these policy processes. And similarly, the Article Six negotiations, uh, th- th- some um, of the uh, the holdover there is thinking from the world of the Clean Development Mechanism and the Kyoto Protocol, where some countries were not obliged to do anything, uh, and uh, anything that they did would be would be paid for by somebody else and the view was that abatement was a really expensive and difficult thing and what we're actually moving towards i think is one where well everybody's got obligations and everybody will be looking for opportunities to reduce emissions um, but also where uh a lot of the abatement is is much easier than we thought it would be. Now there, there's definitely chunks that are harder and the mess the mass markets for um, carbon negative technologies are, are going to take a lot of effort and, and money to establish. But uh, I think that you know bit by bit we catch up with reality and and that is still going on at the moment.
1: What sort of, what's the percentage to you? How, how much of the conference there is about uh, lo- looking and planning for post-carbon and how much of it is about just trying to get you know, the the ambitions established and the, the rules in place?
0: That's a really good question. So, um, of course, you've got the, the kind of the leaders summit, you've got all the negotiations happening to support them. You've then got these incredible sort of um, exhibition areas with the pavilions for every single country most of them represented. And if not, then industry represented, the EU represents kind of um, a variety of different organizations that um, can't physically be present, but as a conglomeration or as a coalition have, have represented themselves. Each of the pavilions have got a week long commitment of programming and that could be hybrid online and in person um each of them has um you know the, the sort of the, the exploration of what the current situation is you know what it's almost like a reinforcement of of where we are right now because covid sort of slowed us down especially when it came to the negotiations in cop um and covid also slowed down the way that we were responding with the challenges of the climate. Because for a lot of us, the pandemic if, if, say, we sort of denied the pandemic, we're denying the climate crises, it became really obvious that that denial wasn't going to go very far, especially when some aspects of this denial was going to become visible. And so this sort of transition of pandemic-proofing our lives at the same time as this layer of global negotiations has led us to appreciate that we need governing principles of the global commons. And one of the bigger questions that I think is appearing, and I will come to your percentage in a sec, one of the bigger questions is, are we fit for purpose at the moment? And so some of the heads of adaptation, for example, even at the UN, are questioning whether the methodology of COP is appropriate for what we need to do next, or whether having the sort of you know incremental shifts of COP and what we negotiate is where we're at. The sort of multi-stakeholder approach to going beyond the boundaries of nationalistic in- incentives to much rather a kind of global communal agenda, which is which is where we're at, not the little bit of land between Peru and Ecuador or, or that little bit that we're going to fish a little bit more so that the, the resources are sort of taken away. Um, so in terms of the actual percentages, um, I would say maybe 10% are, are talking, from from my own experience, are talking about the agendas of going beyond um, the, the kind of net zero thinking and more towards that net positive thinking or going towards that sort of paradigm shift.
1: Yeah, I think one of the senses that I get from the, the McKinsey and Co the, and the economists and the things I've been listening to is this idea that business people would say, this is not the way that we would solve it. <laughs> Given this this problem, we wouldn't be using the mechanisms that are in place. And it goes back to that very fundamental question of probably 20 years ago, about is the UN itself worthwhile, might be outside our scope. Tanner, what, where, where are you sitting? Well,
3: it's absolutely right that um, the multilateral negotiations in uh, the UN Framework Convention are not the place to do everything. Uh, there's some things that only can be done there. Uh, and, and, you know, we need those negotiations and we need to make them work as well as possible. But they, they are not the place to resolve everything. And I had a very weird experience in a um, in a meeting earlier this week where uh, the, a representative of the World Trade Organization was asked about... Um, the WTO's role in trying to resolve some of the issues around trade and climate, including uh, the question of border adjustments. And they expressed, I think, the utterly bonkers hope that um, those issues could all be settled outside the WTO because they don't fit neatly in the WTO's wheelhouse and that the UNFCCC could resolve all those things. Um, now, uh, the the UNFCCC is also, like the WTO, a place that operates on consensus. And consensus is is not possible on some of these really curly issues. You need countries uh, whether it's coalitions of the willing, whether it's um, subnational um, organisations and, and, and jurisdictions, uh, whether it's business and civil society, but you, you need different configurations of, of people working together to make progress on some of these things alongside the, the multilateral negotiations and, and within some of the frameworks established, like what are common agreed rules for accounting so that we don't have, um, you know, completely failed, um, accounting systems and hot air and, and double counting.
1: Yeah. It's this fundamental issue of, um, consensus in in this sense is we come from a sovereign right so i have a right to decide whether or not everyone's going to do what suits my sovereign right it's a kind of a very um we've, we've got everyone being selfish trying to trying to get to consensus we're in the normal negotiations you would say we are all committed to this one endpoint now let's figure out how the actions start it seems Well, a normal negotiation saying. doesn't have 190 participants in it no, that's right. Or to, to however many, two, two twenty is a full count, I think, isn't it? Two twenty-three. Um, but it's, it's a big number. A, it, oh yeah, 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 and, and in wildly different um, uh, genesis, you know, different history. But we are all, all heading to the one target that 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 matters to you. How do, how do we solve this? You you. You're smart.
0: person. I, I love I love this conversation. you know on the one side you've got these targets, but are they really important targets to have? On the other side, you've got the science that backs up the boundaries, that backs up the, um, the percentage increase of, of parts per million. And you know we do have the IPCC reports and we do have the science behind us to support our decision making. I'm going to refer to a conversation that happened at the Global Innovation Hub, which is one of the other pavilions that the UN's got. And it was Sylvia Earle, in her eighties, a 19-year-old activist, and Joanne Rockström. And the conversation was, "Where are we right now?" Rockström said, "You know, these are the trigger points. Um, we've got to do something about it. A rather skeptical approach of the science, and if we don't do something about it, we're all going to die miserably." And Sylvia then turned that around and said, "Not trigger points, turning points." The moderator then asked Sylvia's opinion for so this 19-year-old, and as an activist, just an incredible activist, got a lot of traction. And of course, sitting on the stage with two phenomenal scientists. So the moderator asked Sylvia, "Do you have any? What would you say to your 19-year-old self if this, if this is?" you know, the, the time that you were born. And Sylvia said something really beautiful, and I think often we miss this out in both our negotiations and our conditioning, is that we didn't have the science to make the decisions that we can now. And as much as we could go back and say, well, my time was different, and all we could say today, we have, you know, a constrained, reductive mentality towards these deadlines... But the truth of the matter is, given all of the science, we can make decisions on the visibility with some level of qualification and with some confidence that the information that we've got is better than we had 50 years ago. And that gives us an opportunity to make decisions much better than we would have at any other point in our history. I was you know, brainstorming with the head of AI and climate at Google And the fact that they have the ability to draw that information and make decisions and make that available for a decentralized use of that data is phenomenal. We've got resources that will give us an opportunity to build trust from an otherwise a tragedy of the commons, where you and I will, you know, eat the resources of the planet just for the sake of having them because we're greedy, to a point where we can have protocols of of almost talking blockchain language, but the consensus algorithms that allow for the protection of the resources of the planet, not just for humans. And so I think we've taken this sort of anthropogenic mentality towards the targets, and, of course, it's an existential game. The planet doesn't care about you. (laughs) You know, you don't need to protect the planet. The planet's probably just going to wash you away, and if we need to be cold, we shall be. But from the existential perspective, we're here to try and survive this. And with that is the education, I think that these targets bring us. Yet at the same time, not to think too reductive of like, well, you're only going to be allowed to put your electricity on for like an hour a day. Okay, James. But getting to a point where the abundance of the resources can actually be felt without the scarcity of of desire and, and limiting What could be a rather luxurious life within the context of the technology making that happen or the resource use being appreciated and respected?
1: Paul.
2: Yeah, look, fascinating conversation. I was just thinking, as you were talking there, Tia, about you were talking about Google, you were talking about an 80 year old and a 19 year old activist. And I was thinking about that discussion we were having, you know, you, you and Tennant were having about about uh, the countries and the, the the governments and the UN and sub-national governments and the like. And I'm just wondering in the context of, uh, I guess, the, the increasing power and influence of non-state actors, um, whether it's finance or whether it's business or whether it's even NGOs and groups of community that are connected right around the world much better than they were, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and and mega corporations as well. Um, in terms of you know some of these com- com- countries are you know looking at it from a, a state, a, a national government, and a and, and even a state government or a regional government, and then and then a UN kind of facility. You know it's capturing maybe not the the ones that are actually out there driving some of this change as much, and that perhaps that's some of the frustration as well is that we're stuck in a a, a different governance model.
3: I think that. Oh, um, just a, a quick thought is that there's actually ways in which um, the the national actors and the others can um, help each other and compensate for each other's weaknesses. So, um, in the like as an Article Six tragic, um, there have been efforts by by Google, by Microsoft, by many others to. Uh, Foster carbon reduction technologies and uh, new classes of, of offset that are, or, or unit that are based on um, the use of advanced technologies. And they've encountered a lot of complications in trying to make those um, new techniques operational and be sure that they're actually doing something additional, genuine, and permanent. Because the issues are really hard. The negotiators at the national level have been working on rules uh, and, uh, and accounting and so on for, the, for these issues for a long time. They've been grappling with the challenges. They're not dumb people. They disagree on a lot of issues with each other, but they're very smart. And so the, the frameworks that can be provided by the international negotiations can be really helpful for giving uh, the private sector and non-government organisations and the community something to work with uh, to solve some of the problems. But looking in the other direction, there are a lot of divergent opinions on what's the best way uh, to, um, within the negotiations, on what's the best way to operationalise offsets and markets. You have a push from some quarters to uh, allow a lot of old projects and old units into uh, the post-2020 uh, system uh, and you know that, that and, and to not have um, accounting adjustments for some kinds of activity and these are, these are things that depending on how it plays out they could be weak elements weak links of the result but that only turns into problems in reality if the market, if the people in the market, the buyers, the companies, the, the countries and subnational groups that will be uh, interacting with that market, just accept whatever is swishing around in there. Whereas if they bring their own uh, values and requirements and, and choices, they can pick from among the best of what is provided by the system rather than just accepting anything. So I think really it's it's in... Um, all sides of the equation, uh, borrowing from the best and and trying to improve it, that, that we're going to um, get the most productive synthesis. Not rely just on national government outcomes or just on purely private sector activity.
1: Yeah, it would seem to me, by the way, that that relying purely on governments to solve this is not going to work. We need, you know, much broader approach
0: absolutely james and tenant you know when you were talking i just felt this sense of disempowerment for a lot of people who are not feeling that they're part of the negotiation right that their words are not being included and you know that is that is this relationship that we have with democracy that we have represented um professionals that work on our behalf to make these decisions for us and that it is our opportunity educate ourselves and not be disempowered by those decisions that are made on our behalf. But I also recognize that, like the Guardian wrote about in 2018, that there have been some really incredible strategies by industry to not take the responsibility of what is otherwise an inheritance of choice. So if I go to a shop and the only thing that I can find are plastic covered items, then I don't really have the opportunities that I wish that I could have had. And of course, we can clean up all the plastic that you want in you know um, from landfill sites, and we can do our absolute best of recycling it. But I think at some stage, we have to go to the source of the issue. And I think this is where it's, of course, for a lot of companies that are probably producing those sorts of plastics and thinking, well, you know we need to transition our business model. We need to transition our products and services. How do we do that from a business model perspective? So this is something that I help a lot of organizations, companies and governments do, to take them back to the original thinking and, and to try and figure out what, what is it that you're actually trying to do. Is it you know, to, to reinforce to consumers, let's use the word consumer, don't necessarily need to, but a citizen, for example, is it to reinforce to the citizen that they have choices and that their choices have consequences on the demand for the products are, that are then supplied and designed. At what stage does a choice that, let's say, a consumer make have consequences on the longer life cycle of that one product? Market forces have encouraged for a lack of responsibility of where these products come from because nobody's looking at how the product is designed to how it will be um, decommissioned after its use. And So what you end up getting are these edges of a lack of responsibility and what I mean by that is you've designed waste into the system, the government is going to sort it out afterwards and as a citizen you've done your bit by putting it into the dustbin. If you think with the multiple layers of how that is now structured this means often that we will make a mess and clean it up in the CSR department but why don't you put the CSR department inherently within the framework of the business products and service design so that you have the fundamental needs of whatever purpose and value you've created within every single product. And it's aligned. It's not this like afterthought, but it's a forethought. And if you need to transition your business, just think about the climate risk models and budgets that you put together in your business and your annual reports. And that's your budget. And if you're thinking even further afield, then the research and development costs that, that we have, that we put aside to ensure that our products and services will continue and our businesses will flourish, can also be used as a budget towards that.
1: There was a report in, I think, Bloomberg in the last couple of days, and you and I'll probably share it offline uh, to you, that said that the citizens of the world, looking at the globe, citizens of the world feel like they're doing all they can and that everyone else is letting them down. And perhaps you're saying that uh, there needs to be this sort of shared understanding that we're all in this together. And why isn't that happening?
0: Like if a citizen goes to a shop and purchases something, they are just as responsible as a business that designed it. And they're just as responsible as a government that then manifested infrastructure for that waste. So if you yourself are reinforcing, but blaming somebody else for the decisions that you've taken, then you are just as responsible.
1: Yeah, it's probably a message we need to try and figure out how to get it, get through. Let's move on to a couple other things before we finish. One of the issues that is coming up in the last, has come up in the last week and no doubt will be discussed in the following week is This uh, this concept of process, and in order to get to net zero by 2050, it's assumed you need to sort of be halfway there by 2030. So we, so I have heard this week, people say, so the best way to do that is carbon sequestration. You know, like um, a blue car, a blue uh, what's the what's the colour? The hydrogen that where where we blue hydrogen. Blue uh, from fossils with carbon capture and storage. Is the answer, uh, which is a sort of an old solution, isn't it? And yet there's plenty of people hanging on to, in order to go forward, we've got to hang on to old solutions. The head of BP this week said that in order to build world-class massive hydrogen and wind solar plants, wind and solar plants around the world, we need to fund that from our legacy systems. In other words, we fund it by selling petrol all of it seems to me like we're hearing people say the best way to get to the future is to hang on to the past. What's going on? Is that really the case? Well, I've got a couple of thoughts, um,
3: which include that there's no doubt we've got to start from where we are. Uh, We do have world energy systems and industrial systems that are super duper fossil intensive. um, And, uh like some of those will transition and some of them will not transition and it's uh, it's hard to know for sure which bits will be I was just in an event where um, the Japanese Ministry of um, Industry and trade was suggesting that it was cheaper for Japan to import LNG, make the LNG into hydrogen inside Japan, separate out the carbon dioxide and ship the carbon dioxide in basically the same tanker to Saudi Arabia to be sequestered uh, in uh, depleted oil and gas fields, that it would be cheaper to do that than to import hydrogen. Uh, from from a, a, a green source. Um, I now guess that, that's
1: creative.
3: Well, it's it's a lot of steps in a process. Um, the, um, the way it actually plays out, like we're going to have to see, we should not be surprised that people who are currently doing something hope that there is a pathway for them to keep doing that thing. And they've got a lot of capital bound up in it, a lot of jobs bound up in it. Um, the point is to solve the problem by whatever means turns out to be best. Uh, And we should focus on the outcomes that we want, which is a safe climate and a prosperous, uh, fair world. Um, Now, it looks like that involves most uh, fossil energy use going to zero or near zero. It's possible that carbon capture and utilization or storage will uh, preserve some level of fossil usage. But like anybody banking on doing more or less the same thing as today in 2050, but just sticking a bunch of carbon underground to compensate has got another thing coming. It, it's definitely not going to be uh, the the most um, effective or economical way to get there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I quite like the idea of of from now on, every dollar I spend on fueling my carbon car is going to be spent on building the future of non-carbon. I mean, it kind of makes sense that that is the way forward, I guess. Uh, but Tia, feel free to shoot me down, or Paul?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you are every single moment paying for a system. You're investing in the system of the future that you are reinforcing, right? So if every coin that I've spent towards um, an eco-reforestation project is something that I've accounted for and that I can measure that, that is something that I know has had a consequence that is beneficial for a planet beyond uh, myself. And I think, I just wanted to to, to confirm what you said and that there is this inertia. So only a couple of days ago, I was um, workshopping something with the housing minister of, of the UK, and one of the, the challenges that we have is that, well, we've already sorted that bit out. Why do we have to keep on going back and improving it? We've already got the housing, um, you know, uh, building stock that that can be absolutely fine, doesn't need to be retrofitted, and forget about, you know, thermal imaging to see where your leaky buildings of you and our values are. On the one side, you've got this inertia, nobody wants to change the way that it has been up until now, because to do that would require an overhaul and a massive amount of unlearning. So the paradigm requires this sort of unlearning. So you can't carry all this baggage with you whilst you're still trying to, you can't, you know, you, you can't be sort of eating and, um, you know, eating up the resources and not replenishing them at the same time, right? So there's got to be a give and a take of reciprocity or a symbiotic nature um, relationship that that has been created. Now, that's that's that one piece of, of um, inertia, but. I feel like I need to go back to my Greek here. So there is this concept in Greek called agonismos, which is competition, but it's competition to kill, the zero-sum game. It's like gladiators going into the ring in the Colosseum and one of them comes out dead. And that's where I think a lot of business up until now has just seen this sort of, we're going to go out there, we're going to win and at the cost of everybody else. However, what we're now seeing, and there's a transition between purpose and profit, where, you know, you could do what you wanted to do to the planet, but don't worry about it because you've put an X amount of donation towards an exhibition at the BBC or, you know, the British museum. So this charitable act justifies the work that otherwise has been done, that could be questionable. So you've got this sort of competition to kill mentality. And now what we're seeing is this sort of social entrepreneurship and charities and purpose-driven work becoming synonymous with business. And so... Yeah, you can make profits but at the same time. Your profits can be driven by, say, green hydrogen or, you know, bioplastics or polymers that are good for the planet and whatever else can come on the sort of climate tech, clean tech front. You've also got this concept of game theory where it's called syn agonismos in Greek, but it means that there is cooperation rather than competition to kill. It's competition to cooperate co whatever it's called. But the point of it is, let's say an example, you've got basketball and you're playing basketball, James, you and I, right? But what I'm wins winning. is not you or I, <laughs> and you weren't totally, because you're totally taller than me, but, but what wins is the game. The game always wins. Because no matter how good we get, and no matter how one time I'm going to win, another time you're going to win, the game always gets better. And so what I've been sort of instilling in, in my processes here is to think, how might the planet always win?
1: You've wandered into Paul's area of, um, of innovation and change. Wow.
2: And look, game theory takes me back to my undergraduate economics and the economics of firms and industries. Um, Feel free to respond in Greek, by the way, Paul. Uh, no, not, not certainly not this time at night, James. Um, it might sound a little bit, um, but I there's a couple of things I want to talk about. One was talked about empowerment there and about this kind of whether you're a non-state actor and this empowerment. And and Tia talked about choice. And I think going back to the sort of audience that we're presenting to here, the the, the businesses in Australia that are going to look at this, um, I think when you look at all these things going on, it really does come back to that conscious choice now we're in the fortunate position that we can choose we can choose when we vote we can choose when we consume we can choose when we make a business decision and i think going back to that conscious choice is a one a really powerful form of empowerment actually going i'm going to take control here of 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 my part of what i can achieve and my influence across that and i think that's a really uh a, a really important you know important thing to sort of think about when you're in business because often you can feel like you're in uh, you're just in this flow, you're on this conveyor belt, um, you don't feel like you've got a lot of control of what you c- can do, you can. Um, the other thing it takes me back to is um, actually when I was 20 years ago, I did a master's in sustainable development, and this, this ir- it irritated me, this trade-offs between economic, social and environmental, uh, and, and that's very much that zero-sum gain. Um, and I'd actually, I was a big fan of uh, Stephen Covey, and I loved Synergize. Um, which is beyond this kind of win-lose kind of negotiation Um, and there are so many examples when you actually look at economic social and environmental and you can put them together and you can put collaborative groups together that can actually create more valuable outcomes and more positive outcomes by not just getting in this well actually we've got to look after the economy and therefore we're not going to do so much for the environment Um, it doesn't, the world doesn't work that way. And I think you're right, you know, Tia, when you talk about, you know, looking at it, well, how does the earth win? But actually you can create these win-win-win situations. It requires some creativity and some empowerment, Um, but it can be, it can be, wow. I mean, there's nothing wrong with companies becoming profitable off of green solutions that actually are taking carbon out of the atmosphere or not putting it in there in the first place, right? That's actually a good outcome because the market um, is a fantastic driver. It's a great distribution system if you can if you can get the value levers right.
1: I think that uh, is a beautiful cycle. Back and I'll get a comment from all of you. Is COP going to get us closer to what you're saying? Is COP going to get us closer to this point of environment and social and governance working together, or are we again going to wait for COP 27 to?
0: I, th- I think we stop thinking about COP as the other, and we think of. all of ourselves as the COP team, and we all make that happen. So we're not displacing our power and our capability to a team that's working in Glasgow right now. I think we all have the opportunity right now to be doing things, to be changing our mindsets or to to be um, transitioning all of the fossil fuel-based systems that we've inherited to our emergency generator that's going to be powered off diesel if the electrics go off. I think there are so many things that we can all be doing right now. And if you're pointing fingers at somebody else to do that, then I think that finger needs to come back to you so that you can question what you can be participating in. Because this is not somebody else's issue. You're breathing the same air that somebody else might be. And I think this transboundary nature of recognizing the 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 opportunity of choice here. And I love what you said, Paul, that you can't, you know, you can't stop me from becoming a, a, a trillionaire. You can still make all the money that you wanted and profits that you wanted within the context of something that is good for the planet and and the the triple win, right? And and I think this is where it gets really excited because in this is a freedom of creativity because this is a creative challenge just as much as it is one of technology and science and all of the other frontier capabilities that we may have. Where are we right now and what can we do about it?
1: It's certainly the message that I've been hearing all week from uh, CEOs, uh, CIOs, all sorts of people who are talking about there is opportunities here if we see it as a way uh, forward rather than, you know, a, a painful experience of transition, tenant.
3: So we are definitely going to come back for COP27, COP28. There will be conferences of of the parties for a great many years to come, and they're going to be places where we keep coming together to uh, show where we are up to, to push ourselves to go further, to hold each other to account uh, on what we have said uh, that we would do. Uh, But I think that on its own terms... I think Glasgow has already actually made some very significant progress. It was never going to uh, solve everything in one go, but uh, there have been announcements inspired by it that have moved the needle. And the early analysis from the International Energy Agency that the commitments made at and in the lead-up to COP, if met, very important caveat. Uh, would hold the rising global temperatures to 1.8 degrees is enormous progress. It's not enough progress. We have to cement it and build further on it. But um, a a, a difference is being made. There's a a view out there that it's all just blah, blah, blah. Uh, But it it isn't. Uh, the, The needle is moving. It's not moving as fast as it needs to. Uh, But we need to build on what is being done. Uh, And I think that there is uh, willingness out there among states, among um, business, uh, among civil society, among citizens to do just that.
1: That's a a good way to bring us towards the end. Um, What we got out of this conversation, and and I think it's absolutely fantastic, is that COP is a, a place where we can speak on great levels on many different issues. Uh, We can uh, talk about the challenge in front of us, we can talk about ambition, we can talk about process, we can talk about the rules, but more than anything, we're talking about humanity and business and how it's all gonna work together. Theo, give us a bit of a picture just before we go about what it's like in Glasgow at the moment. 30,000 people, many, many different countries, people from all over the place has there been a fan moment for you anywhere? Have you bumped into someone that's gone? Oh my goodness. And I, I did that with the same?
0: Earle. Yeah, totally. I did that with Sylvia. Earle. when I saw her, I think I started crying and I actually said, you have been one of my biggest heroes. And of course you can come across as sort of like, you know, the, the leaders of the world and, and think, Oh, that's, you know, and that's, Oh, um, but for me, it's been about people who've moved me to action. And for 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 that, I would um I had like a serious fangirl moment with, with Sylvia Earle.
1: And who's Sylvia Earle? I don't I don't know
0: who. Oh, she's a marine biologist. She, incredible documentaries about her work. Um, somebody that has like really taken a compassionate perspective on the science, um, rather than the, you know, you should do better. It's it's more like we've got a beautiful planet. You know, here's some of the, the documentaries that I've captured where you can actually see and learn about the oceans through um, her underwater work. Um, And then she's added the science uh, perspective and and, and really encouraged a much more compassionate approach to um, the existential challenges that we have.
1: I had a fan moment when I saw the, the, uh, the CEO of IBM talk about how this really is exciting. It wasn't—he he, not a fibre in him was talking about this being a a, a, a challenge or a hassle. This is all excitement for him, Tennant. Oh, look, too many too many to pick. Actually, uh, I was in a
3: in a meeting where I got to ask a question of Jim Skay, who's the uh, co-chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes. Working Group 3 on mitigation. So they've got their... We've had the blockbuster report on the physical science of climate change uh, recently, but early next year, we're going to get more blockbusters on the impacts and then Working Group 3, what are our global pathways for, for fixing this and uh, immense work being done by by that group and, and some really... Um, major departures from previous reports I think it's going to well reply well repay deep reading of the probably thousand pages plus of that report when it comes out uh and also I've I've been um pretty amazed by the uh uh the combination of diplomatic skill and uh strategic grumpiness uh of um one of the well all really of the facilitators of the article six negotiations these are people who've been stuck in a succession of rooms with each other for six years trying to nut out uh this this complex set of issues and uh uh, you, they could be forgiven for being extremely grumpy with each other, but they're doing amazing work in keeping the show on the road and, and seemingly getting it to a conclusion this time.
1: We're good to go. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, all of you. Thank you to Tia for sparing the time to uh, to give us your thoughts and your insights and your energy as always. Uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tennant. Uh, And thank you to everyone. We'll see you all, talk to you all next time. Thank you.